morning. Again, I'm Pastor Cheryl. I'm the pastor to families and children. And I will not have you all sit in a circle, but you're welcome to move up if you want to. You're welcome uh, to make yourself comfortable, whatever that means for you. Um, I have the privilege of opening a new series. We are starting a series called People Like Us. The next six or seven weeks, we will be uh, looking at people in scripture who are, whose stories are worthy to pay attention to. Some of them are examples to emulate, others maybe not so much. But that's the beginning of this series. So, I have a soft spot for sidekicks. And maybe it's my own preference to be a behind-the-scenes leader, my own belief that behind every upfront leader is at least one equally important behind-the-scenes leader who supports the obvious leader with perspective, accountability, and encouragement, rightly understood. So here, there is my favorite movie sidekick, Samwise Gamgees. For me, he is actually the hero of the story. Frodo just simply could not have fulfilled his mission without Sam. He provides vital support, compassion, and even true leadership. Especially at that part at the end, the ring would not have been destroyed without Sam. So today we're going to look at another sidekick, or someone who's seen as a sidekick. He's only mentioned a handful of times in the book of Acts and once or twice elsewhere. You can see that on the bottom of the front inside cover of your bulletin are all the scriptures we'll be talking about today. And he's normally thought of as the sidekick to the Apostle Paul. Barnabas is his nickname, son of encouragement. And when I introduce you to him that way, perhaps you first think it's a little simpery, fluffy, not, this is not a popular name that we name our sons, although I was tempted. And maybe that's because we think of him as not like a real man, like Paul and the other disciples. And part of the problem is that we have domesticated encouragement. We think of it as notes and flowers and fluffy extras. But that is not the scriptural witness, and that is not even the actual English definition. Encouragement is the act of giving someone support, confidence, hope. It's persuasion to continue to do something. It's trying to stimulate the development of an activity, of a state, or of belief. Now think about that in terms of faith. It is not weak or simpery or flimsy in any way. It is not an extra. To give someone support and confidence and hope to help them keep on in the faith, to motivate, to stimulate, to fortify, this is substantial. This is critical. And this, I would argue, is central to our faith. We are called to follow Barnabas' example in relationship to one another, and even more in relationship to those who have not yet realized the amazing grace of Jesus. Barnabas is also called Barnabas the Wise, and we will see what special piece of God's wisdom Barnabas offers us. Look and listen to that, listen for that today as you hear his story. So first, let's orient ourselves. We are introduced to Barnabas in the book of Acts, 
Acts, as you know, is the second half of the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel writer tells us that his purpose in writing Luke Acts is, after having investigated everything, to write a carefully ordered account for you so that you will have confidence in the instruction you have received. So Barnabas' story is carefully chosen, and it's chosen to encourage our faith and give us confidence in the truth that we know. His story and its details are important. Now Luke does exactly what he says, and he begins with the angel coming to Mary and with John the Baptist, and he carefully follows Jesus, God with us, showing him to be Messiah, Savior, Lord, and the bearer of the most amazing good news that ever there was. And the Gospel of Luke ends with Jesus' promise that God will send the Holy Spirit, and with the encouragement, with the commission to go forward into the world as bearers of this good news. The disciples who had been followers were now to be leaders. They who had been sheep were now to be shepherds, and they who had found a home in Jesus were now to make a home for others. Acts begins with a detailed description of the fulfillment of that promise. The Holy Spirit comes, and from the very beginning, he crosses boundaries and brings inclusion. He comes with joy. He comes with power. And he comes with encouragement to live into the Great Commission. On the day of Pentecost itself, Jews from every nation in, were in Jerusalem to worship. God's miracle allowed three the disciples speak in their own languages. God's miracle allowed 3,000 people, 3,000 people to join the church that day. Now, I can be honest, I would love the Holy Spirit to grow us in numbers as well as in maturity, but I would be a little intimidated if Jesus gave us 3,000 people all at once. Can you even imagine it? And then on the very next day, they had to do the real work of becoming community. And don't imagine that just because they could understand each, each other's language in that moment, in that miraculous moment, that all their differences of opinion, of perspective, and of culture just went away. The next day is when the real work began. And we are told how they began to be a community. In Acts 2, we're told they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the community, their shared meals, and to prayer. If you're taking notes, note that. God works wonderfully. He worked in the early church, and he works with us. His spirit does blow where it will, and yet there seem to be some foundational practices, some orientations of heart and life that allow God's spirit room to grow. Let us notice that as we seek out new directions for CLC. In this context, into this moment of newly created community, this is where we meet Barnabas. His given name is actually Joseph. He is a Levite from Cyprus, a little island in the Mediterranean Sea. He is a Greek-speaking Jew. So Barnabas was a Levite, and we know that that means he was from the tribe of Levi, those that helped the priest in the temple. 
Maybe he had lived in Jerusalem for a while. Some traditions say that he was one of the 70 or the 72 that Jesus sent out in Luke 10. Maybe he actually encountered Jesus during Jesus' life. Maybe he followed him. Some wonder if he was the rich young ruler referred to in Luke 18 and in two other Gospels. If so, that rich young ruler eventually learned to trade faith for riches. Or maybe Barnabas was simply one of those who had traveled to Jerusalem to worship at Pentecost and heard the good news in his own language on that glorious day. The scripture does not tell us Barnabas' background exactly. We don't know if he's married, if he had kids, if he was young, if he was old. We don't know really much about him. It's fun to imagine. We do know that perhaps in line with Barnabas' family heritage to be a helper at worship and in line with the early church community's norms, Barnabas committed himself to the early, early church believers fully. He sold a field and he brought the money and placed it under the authority of the apostles. That's the first thing we know about him. And when the writer of the books of Acts tells this story, he doesn't hold Barnabas up as an example for having done that. That was normative in the early church. God, as he had uh, provided instruction and resources for the building of the temple years ago, was providing resources for the new community that he was building. Barnabas is contrasted with Ananias and Sapphira, who were sneaky and dishonest, but that's another story. So when we meet Barnabas, we know he is honest, upstanding, earnest in his faith, and willing to put his trust and resources in God and into the community of faith. We assume that he devoted himself to the apostles' teaching, the community, the share of meals, and prayer. Now, when we meet Saul, who is to become the apostle Paul and the primary partner of Barnabas, the first thing we know about him is that he was quite pleased with Stephen's murder. So imagine with me. The young church is at this time a Jewish sect. They had begun in Jerusalem meeting daily, and they were in the temple, but both because of persecution and because of the natural ebb and flow of people to the temple to worship and back home further away, they began to spread out. They were Jews who had come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Salvation was not to come through political power, but rather through this traveling rabbi who reportedly impossibly, outrageously, is said to have died and rose again. The believers begin to hear sad and scary stories about a man named Saul. He is not convinced of the good news. In fact, quite the opposite. He has come to hate the followers of Jesus. He is a Pharisee, a studied religious leader with power and connections. And he is using that power to hunt down men, women, and children who are followers of the way and to put them in prison, or worse. Saul is a very religious man. He is earnest. He is true. He loves God. He loves the scriptures. He has devoted his life to studying them. He is concerned with God's righteousness, with purity of thought, and purity of life. I respect Paul. 
There are ways I have aspired to be like Paul or Saul at the time. But the spirit flows where it will, and Saul was not in alignment with God's spirit. In fact, he was gravely mistaken. He, like the older brother in Jesus' parable, had misunderstood God's grace and God's intention. And that makes him a very dangerous man. Saul continued in his aggressive righteous indignation at the people of the early church. He showed anger and contempt towards them, and he felt justified doing it. Because Paul did not agree with their belief or their practice, he was on the way to Damascus in search of people to imprison. The followers of Jesus were terrified. Imagine that those Jesus followers, including Barnabas, hear this story. While Saul was on his journey to Damascus, he was struck blind and fell to the ground. Me, Why are you hurting me? The voice said. And Saul answered, Who are you? I am Jesus. Now go to the city and you will be told what to do. Then God spoke to Ananias, a different one obviously, and in a vision he told him to go visit Saul and lay hands on him. God told Ananias that Saul was praying and Saul was God's chosen agent to bring the good news to the Gentiles. Now this seems to make no sense at all. Wasn't Saul the one who'd been killing people? Wasn't he the one who stood over Stephen's murder as others stoned him? Wasn't he the one imprisoning people? Could these wild stories be true? Couldn't they just be a trick, a ploy? Wouldn't the Holy Spirit have told one of the apostles if Saul was safe? The disciples were terrified and they had reason to be cautious. But some had been praying, and they came so close to God that they could hear God's voice and follow God's direction, even if it flies in the face of all they think they know. So Ananias is brave, and he travels to the house on Straight Street, and he looks at his enemy, and he says, Brother Saul, Brother Saul, the Lord has sent me to you. And he ate with Saul, and he baptized him. And immediately, by the power of God's Spirit, Saul begins preaching the good news with the power and the understanding and wisdom that his study as a Pharisee provided him. And soon, Saul was in trouble. He was in trouble with those who did not agree with the followers of Jesus. The hunter had changed so completely and spoken so boldly that he became the hunted. His life was in danger. And he was lifted by night by the disciples over the city gates, and he ran towards Jerusalem. But as he ran towards Jerusalem, he must have been worried. And when he got there, no one trusted him. They were afraid. No one believed that Saul was really a disciple. There were wild stories, but really? The apostles felt concerned for the safety of their flock. They were suspicious. They were nervous. So Barnabas took a risk, a huge risk, a bold and exciting and ultimately world-changing risk. But on that day, it probably seemed just like a foolish personal risk. I imagine he, like Ananias before him, went to his enemy Saul and he said, Brother Saul, 
God has sent me to you. And he listened and he heard Saul's story and he recognized the movement of God's spirit and he became convinced of the sincerity of Saul's faith. And then the scripture tells us he took another risk and he brought Saul to the apostles. Perhaps Barnabas had some special prompting from the Holy Spirit, but if so, we are not told about it. It is more likely that by practice and daily closeness with God's spirit, Barnabas had come to know that he was safe, that trust and hope and openness are far more godly ways to live and to orient one's heart than fear and rigidity. There was no guarantee that the apostles would accept Saul, and there was the possibility that aligning himself with Saul, Barnabas might also be rejected. Do you feel it? Do you feel it? Can you feel the risk and the dependency on the Holy Spirit that this moment required? Can you identify such a moment in your own life? At some point, I am very sure that Barnabas and others had to choose to forgive Saul. Saul had to forgive himself. All of them had to move forward to ways unexpected and full of grace. This is beautiful. Scripture bears witness to the fruit of it, and our own faith is the result. But there is no reason to assume that this was easy, or quick, or simple, or painless. So back to our story. Eventually, Barnabas brought Saul to the apostles. He was respected and loved. Barnabas was respected and loved. But he was not the one with authority. He did, however, have influence because of the sincerity of his lifestyle and the quality of his relationships. Scripture does not tell us exactly what happened. Who said what? Who did what? How was it that Saul finally came to be trusted and included? I wonder. But the thing is that as a result of the fact that Barnabas came alongside Saul and encouraged him to have hope, and openness and trust, while at the same time coming alongside Peter and the other apostles and encouraging them to have hope and openness and trust, the work of the Spirit was able to move forward. Barnabas is a risk taker and a bridge builder. This is the essence of encouragement, and I argue it is the essence of the Holy Spirit's work in the world. Think about it. Even Peter is scared, and being Peter, he is probably blustery. There's a lot of reason not to, trust, not to trust Saul. He kills and imprisons, we know that for sure. He's a terrorist, a religiously motivated murderer. We have heard other stories, stories of encounter with Jesus, but we don't know for sure. And think of Saul. He knows who he's been, and he knows that there is every reason for the apostles to fear and reject him. He struggles with regret and with shame, but he is so taken, so changed, so motivated by his encounter with Jesus that he moves forward in faith. He speaks out, preaching the good news, and then he goes to Jerusalem, probably in fear and trembling, in hopes of joining the others. Barnabas must have been an answer to prayer for him. After the leaders in Jerusalem accept Paul and bless his continued preaching and teaching, Saul, Saul and Paul, after they accept Saul and bless him, 
Saul being Saul gets into debates with the Jews who do not follow Jesus, and they try to kill him. The leaders send him home to Tarsus for his own safety. Meanwhile, the good news of Jesus continues to spread and the church continues to grow. Barnabas was sent by the Jerusalem, the Jerusalem leaders to go to the young church in Antioch. And Acts 11.25 says, when he arrived and saw evidence of God's grace, he was overjoyed and encouraged. He encouraged everyone to remain fully committed to the Lord. This sounds like the Barnabas we are coming to know. He then goes to Tarsus to find Saul and to bring him back to Antioch as a co-worker. They stay there for a year, serving, learning, and growing the early church together, and then they are sent out. They work together, traveling and connecting the churches to the mother church in Jerusalem and to one another. They preach, they teach, they write letters of encouragement. Barnabas' attitude of heart, his inclination to notice evidence of God's grace, to spread joy, and to encourage people to continue on fully committed to the Lord, becomes critical for the character and priorities of the early church, and especially for the first true division. Gentiles were coming to accept and follow Jesus. Heathens, people from outside, people not like us. Some were even enemies. What should the rules be? Jewish people had been raised for centuries to understand themselves as God's chosen people set apart. They understood their laws and their customs to be those things that expressed their relationship and connection to God, and they understood circumcision as important, even a critical sign of their devotion and connection to Yahweh. Paul, a Pharisee, and Barnabas from a family of Levites were clearly steeped in these understandings. Yet they had encountered Jesus, they had been filled with the Holy Spirit, and they had learned to see and rejoice in God's grace. God's inclusion, and God's mercy in profoundly unexpected ways. Paul and Barnabas lived and worked among the Gentiles as well as among the Jews and the God-fearers, and they came to know and recognize the shape of the Holy Spirit's work and the Holy Spirit's presence among them all. They came to see the Spirit's action and desire to make one community for many people. And they came clearly and absolutely to the realization that God's Spirit was present and active, drawing people to himself without first requiring them to become Jewish or be circumcised. There were other believers, also at work in the churches, who felt that when outsiders became Christian, they must first take on all the laws and traditions of being Jewish the first significant and important theological division in the church. You and I, this very gathering, is evidence that Paul and Barnabas prevailed. We are told simply that Paul, Barnabas, and several others set this question before the elders in Jerusalem. They traveled there, and Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas argued strongly that the Gentile believers should be required nothing else. And there were others who said that they should be circumcised. After everyone had their say, the apostles and elders gathered to consider the matter. And eventually Peter spoke, who had had his own encounters with God and the Gentiles. And he affirmed that because the Holy Spirit had been given to Jews and Gentiles alike with no distinction, 
no further burden should be placed on the Gentiles. And James agreed. The Gentile believers are asked simply to remember the poor and to avoid the most offensive pagan practices. This is Acts 15, a worthy study of its own. Now, from our perspective thousands of years later, this seems self-evident, a minor controversy. But it was not. It was as complex and difficult and painful as any controversy before us today. Passion and commitment prevailed for believers on both sides. This was for the Jews a profound paradigm shift, a deep change in the way that they understood themselves and God and themselves in relationship to God. And for the Gentile, this was an, an issue of identity. Were they really included? Was God's grace truly for them? Or would they always be second-class citizens within the church? The question then was the same as the question we must always ask ourselves now. What is God's spirit up to in the world? And what is the way to face faithfully participate in that work? After some further season of faithful ministry together, Paul and Barnabas part ways. I always find this a painful part of a beautiful story. Acts 15.36 tells us that Paul had the idea to go back to all the churches where they had planted and worshipped and taught and to encourage to meet with the believers. And Barnabas agreed. Barnabas had the suggestion that on this reunion tour they take John Mark. Paul said no because John Mark had abandoned them, Paul's here at Pamphylia. At least that's what the book of Acts tells us, that Paul said no because John Mark had left them. Now, in Galatians 2, Paul describes an experience of rift deeper between Paul and Barnabas. After the Jerusalem council and the decision that the Gentiles were fully included, Peter comes to Antioch. He eats with the Gentile believers, indicating his full acceptance of them. But then others come, those who would feel more offended by this eating together. And according to Paul in Galatians, Peter, and more relevant for our story, Barnabas get carried away and begin to separate themselves from the Gentile believers. I can imagine and relate to this difficulty. It is in Barnabas' nature to include, to make peace, to find a third way. He is committed to the Gentile believers, but when these guests arrive with their particular sensitivities, he sees no need to offend them. But herein lies the difficulty. Sometimes you cannot have it both ways. Sometimes prophetic leadership is necessary to move a people forward, and on that day, Barnabas' strength as a peacemaker betrayed him. And his dear friend, his now fully established mentee, Paul, he calls him out on it. The Gentiles are equal shareholders in the gospel. Nothing may be added for salvation. It is simply by faith alone. Some scholars think that the later rift over John Mark is actually related to the more significant issue of including the Gentiles without additional requirements, as John Mark is tightly linked with Peter. Perhaps so. Scripture doesn't specifically tell us, but we can learn that it's not fair to simply read the Acts passage as a moment where Paul 
was being a jerk and Barnabas is the consistent good guy. Nor is it fair to ignore the significant mistake, the betrayal of his own deepest belief that Barnabas experienced with Peter in Galatians 2. Paul and Barnabas were beloved co-workers in the gospel over years and over many situations. They remained broken people saved by grace and they each had moments of brilliance and moments of failure. For years, Acts 15.39 has pained me. Their argument became so intense that they went their separate ways. Has felt so sad to me. It's disturbing and forgive me. I'm an optimist, some even say a Pollyanna, a Christian for sure who believes in forgiveness and redemption and inclusion. And I want all of us to be friends and everybody to get along. Couldn't these two great men have simply prayed about it, then had a reasonable conversation and worked this out? And yet, there it is in scripture. They couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. At least not at that moment. But one of the most beautiful things about God's word is that if you trust it, if you keep coming back to the passages that bug you, if you hold your understanding of scripture gently, but your respect for scripture tightly, then by God's grace, scripture continues to reveal God's truth to you. Of course, it's not all revealed, but we get the glimpses we need. And recently, I discovered this, Colossians 4.10. Paul says in his closing greetings, Aristocharis, my fellow prisoner, says hello to you. So does Mark, Barnabas' cousin. You have received instruction about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. So the Spirit's work continued. Acts tells us that the, at the point of disagreement, Barnabas and Mark went to Cyprus, and Paul took Silas and traveled through Syria. They each continued to spread the gospel and encourage the believers. Churches were planted. People were baptized, faith grew. And then we have what for me is a little love note from God there at the end of Colossians. Some reconciliation must have happened. Who knows how? But John Mark is with Paul and Paul is commending him to the Colossians. Thanks be to God. We know that by the power of God's spirit, all things work together for good for those who love God. And this is an example. Barnabas is one of my heroes. His orientation of heart and life towards recognizing the work of God's spirit, towards always knowing, or almost always knowing, the most important things, towards inclusion, and to living in openness and hope rather than self-righteousness and fear is a witness to the gospel. His practices of generosity, prayerfulness, and devotions to God's people are worthy of our emulation. Barnabas, Barnabas is faithful. He's fruitful. He's a follower of Jesus, a risk taker, and a bridge builder. May we all grow to be a little more like him. Amen. Now, I'd like you to turn to your neighbor, and I wonder what part of the story 
is most important to you. Share that with your neighbor. And if you drew a thing or made a thing, show that to your neighbor as well. What part is the most important to you?